Hey, this is Dave Ryder from New Spring Church here in beautiful Perth, Western Australia. Really praying that this message is going to help you. If you'd like some more information about our story, just head to newspring.org.au. Get into this, otherwise, I'll run out of time. Ephesians chapter 4. Have you been enjoying the series so far? Yeah. You've been learning stuff. Yeah. Has anyone else been learning anything? Yeah. Here is the big question Have you been unlearning anything? Yeah. This is the biggest challenge for you guys who are older in the faith, right? If you're like me, I've grown up with a whole bunch of tradition, some of it hasn't been biblical, right? So one of the challenges which the young ones don't get, so like even Chelsea, she was with the youth leaders like the day before, and she was saying, wow, it's so different actually teaching and actually bringing kind of just these thoughts and understanding to like these, these young ones. And I said, of course it is. They don't need to unlearn anything. Of course it's easier. You've got an advantage. But those of us who are a bit older and we've been walking with the Lord and going to church for like, a, like, like what, we, what we've been going through, this should be absolutely rattling with you. It should be absolutely like we should be going through this and say, oh, my goodness, I do not know the story like I thought I did. And if you don't know the story, you don't know Jesus. So it should be really, really shaking us to the core and we should be unlearning a whole bunch of stuff and relearning stuff. And you know what? That's what I pray for you guys anyway. So... Ephesians chapter 4, verse 17 to um, chapter 5, verse 2. This is the next section that we're looking at. I'm not going to have time to go through all of it, but I'm going to pray that God will actually bring enough stuff so we understand what's happening here. Has everyone got their Bible? You guys are like, give me a yes. Brett last week said he didn't need a feisty church. But it doesn't matter what he needs. You are a feisty church. <laughs> that was a great message last, last week, Brett and Eva. Fantastic. Really, really um, hard, challenging, hard-punching, like, challenging thing. Um, and Paul's going to continue to challenge us, so you know. Just a bit of a heads up. <laughs> From verse 17. So I tell you this, and insist on it in the Lord, that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity, and they are full of greed. That, however, is not the way of life you learned when you heard about Christ and were taught in Him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus." You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupt by its deceitful desires, and to be made new in the attitude of your minds, and to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor, for we are all members of one body. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry, and do not give the devil a foothold. Anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work. Do something useful with their own hands, that they may have something to share with those in need. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only which is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption." 
Get rid of all bitterness, rage and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children and walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. This is God's word. Just even listening to that, does anything of that sound pretty challenging? Yeah, I mean, I like Paul, far out. Here we go. (laughs) It was Albert Einstein who said, imagination is the preview of the future. Imagination. Imagination is an incredible gift that each and every one of us has been given. We all have it and um, we all use it. Imagination is the one gift. It's the one thing that enables us to comprehend, to interpret, and to organize reality. If you think about it, even as you woke up this morning, you were able to use your, your imagination to think about, you know what, I need to be at New Spring Church. So what did you do? You looked at your life and you actually organized yourself in order to be here. Imagination has that ability. Imagination is a preview of the future. It literally changes the world. It literally changes the way that we live. That's why we have so many four-year-olds in Superman suits jumping off couches and into beanbags. And we have a myriad of Queen Elsas going around houses and they're making these ice castles all over the place. We do, like even yesterday, like I don't know, like at one moment, um, Jackson was Thor. He had his outfit and then he had his hammer. And then like it was five minutes ago, he was Spider-Man. So like, and he was like jumping up and down. And then like I saw him, he's in the Spider-Man suit. And we've got these walls that are kind of this far apart. So he's climbing up the wall because he's Spider-Man. Imagination, make you do all that kind of stuff. Imagination's the thing that's causing at least four couples in this church right now to imagine what their first day of marriage is going to be like. Isn't that right? Are you imagining? Are you dreaming? Do you realize that marriage is a blank slate and literally Dylan and Katie, you get to create anything you want, anything you want. It could be anything you want, a blank slate, you know. The problem is we get married and we lose our imagination, don't we? We become indifferent and we allow complacency to come in. The number one fight that you should be fighting in your marriage is complacency, is indifference. And if you can fight indifference, you will look upon your spouse and you will understand if this person is made the image of God, there is wonder and there is mystery and there is gifting and there is just absolute treasure in this person. I'm never going to actually find out everything that's in that person. It will keep you, it will give you a good marriage anyway. Any married people here? Are you still in love with your spouse? Are they beautiful? Are they wonderful? Is there mystery? Well, keep on searching because there's so much more in them. (laughs) Imagination's an incredible thing, but here's the deal. When it comes to imagination, there are also a lot of people who've made a habit, and in this habit, they're actually creating a life. I don't know if they know it or not. But they actually imagine what could possibly go wrong in every situation. And what happens, you use your imagination that kind of way, is that you deplete your social, your emotional, your spiritual capital by worrying about something that probably will never happen. You see, you're never going to lose your gift of being able to imagine. But as we get older, we actually use the way we, we, we change the way we imagine. When you're young, you want to be Spider-Man. When you turn to 40, it's like, oh my goodness, the world is falling apart. And You know, there's... you never lose imagination. It comes down to how you're going to use it, all right? We never use that ability. 
Imagination is important not just for young kids, but it's also really, really important as we grow older. And as we've been kind of going through Ephesians, this idea of imagining, reimagining, is something that has been coming up over and over and over again. The idea of imagining makes its way throughout this letter. Though curiously, and I think this is really, really important if you're a follower of Jesus Christ to understand this, curiously, we find that this gift of imagination is placed within the context of something else. It's almost as if we have this great gift that we can imagine, but it needs to be placed in its appropriate context. And this context which we are shown and this context which Paul demonstrates is something that each and every one of us have access to. It's an incredible thing that we have. It's, uh, it's something that if when used appropriately and when understood, it literally renews our imagination. It's something if we properly understand it, it will literally remind your mind. Okay? It will remind your mind. It provides a context to reimagine or renew our minds in light of the kingdom of God. And this incredible context, this incredible thing is called worship. Worship. Imagining is an important thing, but it finds its place within the context of worship. Think about it, even this letter, um, it starts with worship. In fact, throughout Israel's story, worship has functioned to reorient Israel's mindset and their imagination. Because what are we doing? Even this morning, we sing songs like, Jesus is Lord, Jesus is King. Well, that means something, you know? It means something. Like some people I like, sort of say like, it, 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 it means something. Worship has always been this constant reminder, this, celebratory, uh, this celebration and this reminder that God, the God of Israel was king of all creation and that God's people were a uniquely blessed people. Think about it. That's what we sing, you know? My chains are gone, right? Seriously, what does that conjure in your mind? Anyway, so it's no surprising as we read through Ephesians that from the very beginning it bursts forth with praise and with worship. Ephesians 1 verse 3. Praise be to God and the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. The very beginning of this letter we looked at weeks ago, I think it was Doug who actually taught on this. Ephesians 1 verse 3 to 14 is an explosion, this Hebrew, his Hebrew benediction of praise and of worship. It actually comes forth, it's an explosion and it's, it's just something that actually sets the tone for the entire letter. Could you imagine if the tone of our entire life was set with worship, with praise, that that was the actual tone, that was the trajectory, that was the framework within we actually lived. And that's what happens in Ephesians. And within this amazing explosion of worship, within this, this explosion of praise, that we actually find a phrase which is so significant and a phrase which is now going to be outworked in practicalities in Ephesians chapter 4 to chapter 6. But you need to understand that this is the outworking of a, of, a, of a phrase, of an expression that's found itself in the context of worship and of praise. And the expression is simply this, to the praise of his glory. Yeah. 
to the praise of his glory. It comes up over and over again in that first passage of praise, that benediction of worship, that benediction lifting up before God. In the context of worship, there is this expression of who we are supposed to be, to the praise of his glory. Ephesians 1 verse 12 says, In order that we who were the first to put our hope in Christ might be for the praise of his glory. Ephesians 1 verse 14, Who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory and something which is very similar in Ephesians 1 verse 6 to the praise of his glorious grace which is freely given us in the one he loves to the praise of his glory gets to the purpose of who you are of who I am why are we created we are created to live to the praise of his glory in other words that we would reflect his glory that's the point that's the point. And notice, it's very, very curious. Like we come in here and like we're standing over there and like, you know what, we do a lot better now. But, but we can come and like we can start worship and say, well, what's the relevance of this? You need to understand the relevance of this because as we are singing, as we are clapping, as we are dancing, as we are celebrating, we are reimagining what this world could look like. We are reimagining and we are being reminded of our place in God's story. And in that, we find the context of who we are. We are to live to the praise of his glory in the context of worship and praise. That's how it works. So we're originally designed to actually relate to each other in life-giving ways. Isn't that good? Life-giving ways. You know, it's like this open picture, this open posture, I should say, to the entire world. Loving and being loved, enjoying and being enjoyed. We, we, we were actually created to live and flourish in God's good world. Enjoying God and being enjoyed by God. Loving God and being loved by God. To be truly human, to be fully human, was to live and to flourish in a way that would reflect the glory of God to the praise of His glory. That's God's original intention. But we understand that something went wrong, didn't it? So since the fall... Our fall into sin, humanity has lived to the praise of the glory, not of God, but to the praise of the glory of other things and other people. There's been a bit of a change in that direction. We've been living in such a way as to reflect and image other things or other people, to orient our lives, to earn the praise of others by living to reflect something that is seen as praiseworthy from within the culture. We no longer live with reference to God and as a result, we are, as Augustine once famously said, we are curved in on ourselves. It's very different to live with a posture which is open to everyone else as opposed to a posture which is curved in on yourself. So God's intention was that we would live in life-giving ways, a posture of love and openness towards God and others, and now we are curved in on ourselves. I mean, just think about that. To be curved in, what would it kind of look like? Well, I don't know. It's like, imagine living your life like this, and all you can see is yourself. There is no ability to actually look upon anyone else. You're just looking at yourself. There's no ability to really function too well because you're curved in on yourself. That is what sin has done. It's caused us to curve in on ourselves. I mean, like, if I was to like, really curve in, and I'm not athletic and flexible enough to really do it, but you know what? I'd look kind of odd, wouldn't I? Like, like, even like walking around the world, it would be like, really, really painful. 
And it'll be really, like, really hard to actually engage with anything other than myself. But that is, in, like, to, to, use a, to use a picture, that is kind of what has happened to us spiritually as sin comes in. We were originally created to be the open in our posture towards God and towards others, but sin comes in, we're curved in on ourselves. You can kind of picture that. And what happens is that it's actually a harmful posture to have in life. It's oppressive and it's enslaving. There's no freedom in like being curved in. Like you saw me, I can't even do a sprint, or I can't do a sprint anyway, but you know what? You can't do anything. So what happens when we're curved in on ourselves? We find ourselves inclined towards ourselves, to our brokenness, to our bitterness, to our own hurts and to our own pains. It all becomes about me, 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 me. Ever met someone when it's all about me, 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 me? And the condition, when you're in that place, there's a deception that happens because you honestly believe you have no other vantage point, there's no other alternative way of living or looking out into the world. So you honestly think that to be curved in myself, it honestly makes you believe that to be truly human means you need to be independent from God. So that individualism, personal freedoms, becomes our ultimate God. And we all understand that such a belief ensures that any person in that predicament, they will never, ever live a life that is truly human. And the vision of Ephesians, the vision of God is that you and I would become truly human. So for three chapters, Paul's been sparking our imagination. He's been telling us and retelling about this glorious story of God. This story, this vision where, where God has enabled us from before the foundation of this world, knowing all of the brokenness, knowing all of the principalities, all of the powers, He has made a way, He has predestined a way so that you and I could possibly know Him as Father. What an incredible vision He's given us. That we are God's new creation, we are new humanity, that we are the church and we play a cosmic role displaying the manifold wisdom of God, not just in this world but to the principalities and the powers. We are to live as a contrast, we are to live as a mockery of these powers that are continually trying to enslave humanity because while others are enslaved, we live as free. Our life is a complete mockery of the principalities and powers. It's incredible, isn't it? I mean, allow that to remind your mind. My goodness. Salvation is not a ticket to escape earth and go to heaven. No, 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 no. There's stuff that's happening right here. We are God's workmanship. Can you imagine that? Just imagine that. We are God's masterpiece. Now, I know some people here, you, you, got like, you think, look at yourself and say, there is nothing masterful about me. It doesn't matter what you think about yourself. You need to know the truth. You are God's masterpiece. Imagine that. Imagine that. You are God's masterpiece, that we are restored humanity reflecting our life-giving God to this world. Imagine that. Imagine that. <laughs> the story of God is a return to God's original intent and design so that those of us who know God as Father are those who stand up straight in a curved-in world. That's what we have to do. We are those who stand up straight with an open posture in a curved-in world. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine that? Can you imagine no longer being curved in on yourself or myself? Can you imagine being able to relate to this world, to God, to each other in fruitful ways? Can you imagine that? See, we are now to live for the praise of his glory, the kingdom of priests who bring God to the nations and nations to God. Imagine that. 
Fred Lehman said this, listen to this, said this. Fred Lehman said, God's purpose is to set new creation in the midst of the old, redeem people in the midst of fallen, love in the midst of hostility, self-abasement in the midst of self-assertion, submission in the midst of domination, to humanize and redeem the fallen structures. Now, can you imagine that? I feel like Mary Poppins right now. Can you imagine that? (laughs) Can you imagine that? The fallen structures of this world being humanized and redeemed? Can you imagine that? This is what Paul is trying to get our imagination to start sparking in these areas. And if we just read through the Bible, say letter, and we just want to go through a Bible reading plan and go from this place to that place, understand you can use Bible reading plans, but please use them as a supplement. Do not use Bible reading plans as your diet because you will never discover the story. You'll never know it. You will never know it. You can live 10, 20, 30, 50 years following the Lord and may never know the story of God. You may never know that Jesus is the the fulfillment of. You will never understand or even hear the words that Jesus is bringing about a new exodus. Like when people talk about a new exodus and what God is doing, say, what is that? No, 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 you need to know the story. need to hear the story. But imagine that. So God's plan is to actually do that. And God's plan has always been from the Old Testament, New Testament, Israel's story into what we now live as a story of God. God's plan has always been that he is going to transform the world by using a transformed people. That's his strategy. Transform people, transform the world. So that's what Paul wants to talk about now. That's what he wants to talk about. In the midst of living in a curved in world, he wants to talk about what it means to live upright. In a world that needs transformation and renewal, he wants to start talking about what it means to actually be a transformed people. Because a transformed people will literally transform the world. And understand this, <laughs> for some reason Nathan wanted me to talk about temples. So we talked about temples at a youth. And we talked a little bit about temples on Sundays as well. But understand this, when actually knowing who we are as transformed people, as temples of the Holy Spirit, and the fulfillment of Jesus, that temple idea, that out of us burst forth rivers of living water that go out into dead seas and make dead seas fresh. Seriously, here, here, here's the thing we can rest in. What we do is almost inconsequential. Where we are, that's significant. Because if we are transformed people, wherever we are, there'll be transformation that happens around us. So Paul wants to talk about this. So he starts off in Ephesians 4.17. It's just important for us to understand what Paul's talking about. Otherwise, we will see a bunch of do's and don'ts as we read through this next couple of chapters. So he says this from verse 17. So I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord that you must no longer live as Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. Now, this sentence is echoing the exhortation of the letter of Ephesians, which we talked about a couple of weeks ago, that Paul's actually talked about in Ephesians 4 verse 1, when he says, Therefore, I, a prisoner for serving the Lord, I beg you to lead a life worthy of your calling, for you've been called by God. Everything in the letter of Ephesians is pretty much bringing one exhortation that we would actually live a life worthy of the calling because we've been called by God. But now in verse 17, understand that there's a new weight that he's adding to this. There's a new way. I mean, Paul doesn't seem to be too seeker sensitive, to be honest, when he's talking to Christians. Because this is what he says. So I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord. Now, I mean, if you're going to bring out the Lord language, you know, you're really laying it on there, don't you? (laughs) You know, it's like Mitchell, I want to tell you this. No, no, 
I'm insisting on it. Now, actually, God's got my back in, in the Lord. This is, a, this is a weighty thing which he's saying now. This is not a section where we are like, oh, you know what, this is kind of a suggestion. Paul is not making any suggestions in this section. This is command with the authority of the Lord. This is like the heavy stuff. And we have to feel the weight of that. Have to feel the weight of that. And it's really interesting that he says, like, I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do. That sounds really, really strange because he's speaking to Gentiles. Does it not seem strange? It's like, you know, like he's, he's talking to Gentiles who, who are not Jewish people and he's saying, I'm talking to you Gentiles, but I don't want you to live as Gentiles. That's a bit odd, isn't it? bit strange but once again what Paul is actually doing he's drawing us back to what he started talking about in chapter 2 that there is now a new category of you and I who choose to follow Jesus Christ that when we give our life to Jesus we do not become Jewish or become more Gentilish there is actually a new category our identity is rooted firstly and foremostly in that word we are the church so me as an Anglo-Indian, I remember when I was younger, I remember one conversation from my dad, and he was looking at us three, and I think we were doing something like what every other kid did, and he looked at us, and he said, I didn't raise you guys to be Australian, I raised you to be Anglo-Indian. And you know what? He got that completely wrong. Because my identity is not as Australian. Firstly, it's not as an Anglo-Indian. If you're here, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you need to understand your identity is not like... European, Chinese, African, Aboriginal. First and foremost, your identity is the church. And he's coming back to that thing. He's saying, I'm talking to you Gentiles, but don't act like the Gentiles. That makes no sense unless you understand that there's another category, there's another grouping. We are firstly and foremostly the church. And again, if we have a low view of the church, you're going to have no idea who you are. There's another category. We're the church. We're to live the church. And this is kind of what he's saying, like, you are the, if you're in Christ, you're the church. So act like it. That's what he's saying. It's like, to act like it. And then what he does is that he gives us a reminder. Because everyone in this room, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, at some stage, we all used to live as the Gentiles do, is what he's talking about here. All of us used to live, and you know what? There's parts of our life that actually stu, still do live for the praise of other things other than God. Is that not right? It's an ongoing thing. So what he does is that he actually gives us a contrast here. And he actually lets us know the way that we used to live. And what he's saying is that the way that we used to live, in fact, the way that we are still living, is a reflection on our thinking. And our thinking. The area of transformation is the arena of the mind. So he uses this word called futility, which literally means empty, worthless, purposeless. And that's a pretty strong word, isn't it? But then he layers onto that word futility, he layers on a metaphor. He says, they are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. So he uses this word futility, which is pretty hard, pretty heavy, and then he adds this metaphor of darkness upon it. Adds that on. Have you ever like been in a blackout in the middle of the night in your house and tried to like make your way around? Have you ever like bumped into things and like consider that paradigm as opposed to walking outside right now, which is an absolutely glorious day out there, and the way you would walk out there? 
I mean, you could go for a skip, you could go for a run, you could do anything right now. There's absolutely clarity out there, isn't there? Now compare that to how you would be if there's a blackout in your house where it's pitch black. You walk different, don't you? There are certain things that you can do out in the daylight which you can't do if you're completely blacked out. You're cautious. You're like feeling things. What he's saying that there is actually a difference. There is a contrasting difference to the way someone who lives in the light functions and walks and engages with those around them, engages with creation, and engages with. There's a distinct difference between walking in the daylight and walking in complete darkness. But you need to understand that this idea of futility, the mind's like this worthlessness, this purposelessness, there's this idea and these ideologies which are completely empty, and then you add on to this that they are actually darkened as well. He's letting us know there should be a real difference in the way that we are walking. There should be such a sharp, distinct, obvious, observable difference, observable difference. You know there should be an observable difference between someone who follows Jesus and someone who doesn't follow Jesus. And then we can't be the things like, oh, yeah, I'm better than that person. No, you're not better than anyone. Because any light that you're walking in, you didn't, you didn't even have a candle. Any light that came into your life and my life came to us from him, right? So what we should have is compassion. It's almost like we need to walk in such a, fra- such a way and in such freedom that lets the rest of the world know, and it should actually be a lifestyle that actually is so attractional that lets the rest of the world know, so, you know what, you can walk like this as well. And then he goes on, he goes on. Because <laughs> after that metaphor of darkness, he adds another metaphor. Hard hearts. Futility of their mind, darkened understanding, hardness of hearts. Separation from God comes from not knowing God truly. It is a result that it is a result from ignorance that comes from choosing not to know or serve God. It's, the hardening of a heart is almost like, um, has anyone ever had calluses before? I used to play the guitar a lot from um, the age of 11 up until probably about the age of um, 25. And my fingertips were rock hard because I had these calluses. And I could actually like, play without pain. On Friday night, um, Vicky had a guitar there. And like I was trying to strum around, I was playing guitar. It didn't take long. My fingers were so sore. I used to be able to play for hours. I can't even play for five minutes now because my fingertips get so sore. But that's what calluses do. This is what calluses do. They get rid of sensitivity. And Paul's saying that there's calluses and a hardening of people's hearts, which means they are now no longer sensitive to destructive habits, to destructive ways. Verse 19, having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity, and they are full of greed. And what's happened, that there is this ironic twist that has taken place. And it doesn't seem to make sense because you would honestly think that if I was to indulge in something, if I was to feast on something, that I would become full, right? I mean, if I went to a buffet and I indulged, it wouldn't be too long and I would be absolutely full. But what Paul is actually saying is that to indulge or to feast on lusts leads not to an excess of feeling, but to a lack of feeling. You lose your sensitivity. 
there's an ironic twist, which is in play here. You know, you don't get full, you get empty. Have you ever like gone after something and said, you know, that is going to satisfy me. You get it and then you realize I'm still not satisfied. Then you go after something else. I'm still not satisfied. You go after something else. I'm still... That's why we have people who are just so on edge, who are so looking at this, so looking at that. We have people who are so distracted because they found no satisfaction. Because you're simply feasting on things that will never satisfy. This is what he's saying. So the idols or the gods of this world, sex, money, power, control, here are the big ones for this cultural moment right now. Individuality. Personal freedom. Right? You can't tell me what to do. I'm free to do whatever I want. Not if you're in Christ. (laughs) I'm sorry. (laughs) We need to actually really articulate what it means to make Jesus king of your life. These things that promise to fill you up, they don't fill you up at all. They empty you out, damaging and dehumanizing you. That's what happens. And the more you feed, the less you feel and the more insatiable the, the appetite is for destructive things. Have you ever wondered how perversion works? You know, you look at like some extreme perversions and all that and think, oh, did someone just start there? No, you started here. But this didn't satisfy, so you tried something else and you tried something else and you tried something else and you tried something else. And what you're trying to do, you're trying to satisfy something and you found it's not being satisfied. So you try something bigger. You try something more dangerous. You try, And that's how it works. That's how you end up over there. This is what Paul's actually saying. It goes. And when you're hollowed out, the less you actually realize that you've lost all sensitivity. You can't feel how wounded you are, how unhuman you are. And you do not understand, you do not recognize how destructive you are becoming to other people. That's the dilemma. But that's where we all once were. And understand that, that we who have found freedom in Christ, we are to look upon everyone else and, and, and other people, and there should be a heart of compassion. There should be a heart of love, knowing that God's already written the adoption papers, hasn't he? Before the foundation of this world, he has rooted his love so deep so that anyone could know God as Father. Let me introduce you to a life where you don't have to keep on going down this, this purposeless life. You can actually find true freedom and true satisfaction in Jesus. That's what's kind of happening here. So the walk of Gentiles is not merely a matter of wrong and destructive actions. These actions reflect wrong, vain thinking that is itself a result of a willful rejection of God. So in their minds, there's a blackout. It's dark and there's no light. That's what he's saying. And then Paul's saying after that, He's actually making a contrast and he's saying that there is such a contrast between that sorry state of living like that and this new life, this new way of living that God has provided for you right now. And that's why he's saying, don't live like that anymore. You've come from that. Why would you go back to that? Don't live like that. Verse 20 says, That, however, is not the way of life you learned when you heard about Christ and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. Now we get a little bit blunt. Just letting you know. Consider these words. Learned. Heard. Taught. Let me be as blunt as I possibly can. Sunday, coming to church 
and hearing a message, Sunday is not enough. And if part of your rhythm of life does not include regular Sunday attendance to church, let me give you a gift. Sunday is not enough. Because that's what he's saying. That, however, is not the way of life you learned when you heard about Christ and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. Sunday's not enough. Like we do a lot of, um, we're very blessed in this church. You have very, very good Bible teaching. <coughs> Are you aware of that? You get some of the best teaching in Perth. All right? You're spoiled. I'm spoiled. But it's still not enough. Now, we're going to try our best. I mean, like last week, you had Brett, then you got Doug right now, Matt's in Kalamunda. I mean, seriously. Dear Lord. <laughs> there is some incredible, incredible stuff that comes. But what we go through on Sunday, that's actually still not enough. Still not enough. In every other learning environment, we are trying to learn concepts. You go to school, you try to learn concepts. You go to physics, you're trying to learn ideas and chemistry and you know that. But when it comes to the Christian faith, we're not trying to learn concepts. We are actually trying to learn Jesus. We're learning Christ. Christianity is focused on one person. The one in whom we have a living relationship. Being a disciple predisposes that we are learners because disciple means apprentice. Have you ever been an apprentice? Or have you ever had an apprentice? Who's ever had an apprentice? Is there an expectation that your apprentice will actually learn something? Right? Have you ever been an apprentice? Is there an expectation on you that you will actually learn something? A disciple is an apprentice. That's what that word means. We are to learn Christ. We come to know Christ through faith. We know him by communing with him in our own personal walk. You know, like what Brett was saying last week, you're going to have to go up the mountain yourself. You know, it's all well and good. I mean, I can go up to the mountain, I'll come down and I'll teach you. Do that every Sunday. Happy to do it. Pleasure. It is an absolute blessing for me to come here and actually bring it out and, and try to teach you. But we're supposed to do that by ourselves. We also learn Christ by living as part of his body, part of the church, not separated from the body, but functioning within the body. Do you know that? So this God of individuality has crept into the church, in the Western church, and we think that we can do our Christian life by ourselves, and you're not going to learn Christ. How are you going to learn forgiveness unless someone really hurts you? <laughs> How are you going to learn patience unless someone really gets up your goat? You're not going to learn the ways of Christ unless you're part and functioning and serving within the body. Sunday's not enough. Sunday's not enough. And this letter is, is communicated and circulated to Gentile Christians, not Jewish Christians. They did not personally have the pleasure and privilege of physically walking with Jesus. You know, they're like us. We're not Jewish, we're Australian. There's not one person here where you've personally walked with the Lord, like physically. 
So the question is, how are we to know that? Verse 21, when you heard about Christ and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. That seems crazy. How is that supposed to happen? Well, isn't it great for us that Paul's already told us? If you remember, Ephesians 4, verse 11 to 13. So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, the teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Not only individually did we give, give gifts, but if you remember, he gave the church gifts and those gifts of people, the apostles, the prophets, the teachers, the pastors, the evangelists. They play a significant role because the amount of learning that's going to be required is very, very vast. So God gives us these gifts, but then Ephesians lets us know what these gifts or what these people will teach us. Verse 22 to verse 24. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires to be made new in the attitude of your minds and to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. You know what this tells me? That I need someone to teach me this new way of living. It seems so simple. Like we can like simplify this and say, oh, this is saying I need to take off the old self just simply like if I took off a jacket. Okay, now we might need to take off a jacket, but what Paul is actually saying, you're going to need someone to teach you how to take off the jacket. That's why we need each other. That's why we need these gifts. That's why we need these graces, because we are to continually take off this stuff, but we don't know how to take off this stuff, so we need people to teach us how to take off this stuff. If God's purpose is to set new creation in the midst of old, redeem people in the midst of a fallen, to love in the midst of hostility, self-abasement in the midst of self-assertion, submission in the midst of domination, to humanize and redeem the fallen structures, we need to be taught how we do that. And it all comes down to what's happening in our mind. Imagination. A preview of the future. Imagination enables us to comprehend, to interpret, and to organize reality. To get a glimpse of what it looks like by the Holy Spirit to reimagine this world. What God is doing and what our place is in it. And to reorganize our life in that way. And I know, it is a bit of a hard-hitting section, isn't it? But think about this. If you ever come to a point where you're kind of saying, I simply don't have time to organise my life in order to allow these things to happen, I would probably say to you, it's not a matter of time. You need to broaden your imagination. Because imagination is a preview of the future. Imagination is the tool that allows us to interpret reality and organise reality so that we can actually walk into the things that we can see. As we come to an end, verse 23, to be made new in the attitude of our minds, to put on the new self created, to be like God in true righteousness. 
To be made new actually implies a couple of things. Number one, that I cannot make myself new. God makes me new, right? But in some kind of mysterious way, there's a cooperation that happens. I cooperate with the Holy Spirit and he makes me new. And the other thing that lets me know this language, which we don't really read in the English, it lets me know that this is going to be an ongoing process. So remember that image about being in a blackout house in the middle of the night and then light comes and you can walk a bit more freer. This is what it's saying. In our mind, there are still places of darkness that God's light has to hit. I don't care how long you've been walking with the Lord. You can be like every title under the sun, right? If you are living here right now, a follower of Jesus Christ, there are still places in your mind that are dark. And there is still a need for the light of God to hit that. This is an ongoing process. I serve as your senior pastor. I'm the leader of this church. There are places in my mind that are dark. And I need God to hit that with his light. And as he hits that with his light, I start walking in greater freedom. It's letting us know that. Sorry, I'm running way out of time. There's just too much in here. Let me just finish with this. We're running out of time. This is the next section. Ephesians 4, 17 to Ephesians 5, verse 2. Okay. Now, if you were just to take the bookends, this is what you would read. Okay. This is what you would read. So I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord, that you must no longer live as Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children and walk in the way of love just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. That is what we are to do, to walk in the ways of Jesus, to understand the ways of Jesus, not to walk in new concepts, but to walk in Jesus, in the truth that is in Jesus. And there is no other way to walk in the way of Jesus other than to be taught to learn how to walk in the way of Jesus. There is this understanding that we are going to have to continually put off all stuff. If you've got some things in your life and they seem nasty and they seem filthy and they just seem wrong, great. That stuff needs to be taken off. If you find that there's a tension inside of you and you feel like you keep on doing this stuff and it's wrong and you feel like there's a tension in there, don't think that that's an indication that you're far from God. That's an indication that you are near to God and there is a tension inside of you and the Holy Spirit is actually trying to entangle you from this destructful, sinful stuff that's going to dehumanize you. We're going to have to continually take things off. And if you can imagine a world where God's kingdom breaks in and breaks forth. And if you can imagine your place within that story, it will reorganize your entire life and you will come to the same conclusion as to what I'm saying right now. Sunday is simply not enough. Sunday is simply not enough. Sunday is good, but it's not enough. We're going to have to get serious about I need, I need someone to teach me. What does it mean to live in purity? What does it mean to live in holiness? Young guys here, you're going to have to come to people and say, 
what does it mean to be a godly husband? What does it mean to be a godly wife? Because you have no idea. Guess what? You've never been a husband before. You've never been a wife before. So you're going to have to learn. Isn't that right? We have to learn and we have to do this. Anyway, I had so much more gold stuff, but we've run away at a time. But I think that's enough for us today. Was that all right? Let me pray for you and let's worship. If nothing else, Sunday's not enough, guys. I don't want to be a curved-in Christian. I want to live with a posture that's open. I want to live to the praise of His glory. Father, we come before you in Jesus' name. And Father, we thank you for your word. I ask that there's enough of your word that's been articulated to bring about transformation, God. We're not talking about change. We're talking about transformation, God. Father, we ask that you will come and that you would shed light on those dark places in our mind, that there will be a renewal, that there will be a reimagining, that there will be a reminding of our mind so that we would live in a way that glorifies you, that loves others and is loved by others, that loves you and is loved by you, that we would live as truly human in this world, that we would live in a way that is truly flourishing in this world, and that we would live a life that is so attractional that those who are walking in darkness, they will look upon our life and we will be able to tell them and not just tell them, but to show them and to demonstrate and to teach. This is how you walk in true freedom. This is how you walk as a truly human person in this world. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would transform us and change us. Do not let us depart from here the same. But change us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Amen.